Okay, my name is David Webb. Uh, I'm the uh, head of the finance department here at LSE. And uh, this evening, uh, public lecture given by uh, Dr. Paul Woolley, who's uh, actually been here at the school now for uh, three years, uh, where he uh, effectively, with my colleague Dimitri Vianos, runs the uh, Paul Woolley Center for the Study of uh, Capital Market Dysfunctionality. Uh, which is uh, housed within the Financial Markets Group, of which I was once the director. So Paul uh, is nothing but controversial, so this evening's talk will certainly stimulate your interest. There'll be things with which you agree and things with which you disagree. So the first part of the talk will be uh, Paul's uh, presentation. Well, Paul will make his presentation, then I'll open it up for questions. I just say that Paul's actually very well placed to talk about the uh, issues that, uh, that tonight's uh, presentation are about. He's spent uh, many years in the financial sector uh, as a, a principal of, uh, well actually it's, it's uh, Woolly GMO, which is linked to GMO, the Boston-based uh, fund manager. Uh, prior to that, uh, he did his PhD at York University uh, uh, 35 to 50 years ago. Is that right? Yes? More Somewhere in that More interval. Yeah. And um, he uh, subsequently worked uh, in the city at Bearings and also at the IMF. Um, however, um, in, for the last few years he's been here at the LSE where, amongst other things, uh, he's been studying uh, capital market dynamics, uh, fund flows, asset price formation and so on. Uh, the size of the financial sector um, and some of the agency problems that exist in the finance uh, sector which are obviously very pertinent at the moment uh, but today uh, he's going to talk about a manifesto for giant funds uh, resolving the dysfunctionality of finance so uh, we all remain to be enlightened so thank you very much Paul Good evening. Uh, thank you, David, for that uh, generous interaction. Um, the, um, I'd, I'd like to talk um, about uh, it's, the title of the talk is the Manifesto for Giant Funds, uh, Resolving the Dysfunctionality of Finance. Uh, let me explain what this is about. Um, we all know the world uh, has suffered a succession of financial crises over the last 18 years. Uh, and the first thing that policymakers do is always to try and contain the damage and restore equilibrium and growth. And once that's at hand, the focus then shifts to uh, try and prevent a recurrence. And this is what's happened in, in the aftermath of the latest crisis, first the firefighting and, and now the uh, fire protection. And the debate that's going on at present really is about the sort of regulation that should be imposed to try and prevent a recurrence. Uh, regulation predominantly of banks. In this lecture I'm going to put forward an entirely different approach uh, to, avoid, to avoiding uh, disaster in the future and to addressing some of the dysfunctionality of the finance sector. 
And this work stems, uh, or this uh, talk will stem from research going on here at LSE and at Toulouse University, where there's another center for the study of capital market dysfunction dysfunctionality. Now, regulation is, um, is a negative approach uh, based on restrictions, primarily targeted at banks. And bankers naturally try and resist uh, and circumvent restrictions. What I'm proposing is a positive approach, one that invokes the self-interest of the giant funds. The, oh, that's me. <laughs> I think you might have pressed again. Uh, the, um, uh, I, when I talk about the giant funds, I'm talking about the custodians of social wealth, who are the sovereign wealth funds, that have been growing rapidly in the last 10 or 15 years, particularly led by the Norwegians and some of the uh, Middle Eastern funds, the corporate pension plans and the public pension plans, the charitable foundations and college endowments, particularly in the States. These are the custodians of, of society's savings. They hold uh, large portions of the equity and, and bond markets. And the proposal that I'm going to put forward is one that, uh, in my view, addresses the heart of the problems in finance. And I think the giant funds, I'm sure the giant funds have been unwittingly complicit in the creation of a vast, unstable monster that finance has become. And it's cost them dearly. I'll show how that's occurred and how it can be stopped. And I will describe the radical policy changes that giant funds can individually make, individually make, to improve their individual long-run returns. That's the private gain part of the proposal. And once these strategies are implemented by large numbers of funds on a global basis, that's where the social gains start to, to kick in. And the social gains are in the form of more stable markets, faster economic growth, and less bloated and exploitative banking and finance sector. These are the fruits of a better system. And the giant funds approach that I'm advocating uh, is not mutually exclusive. It, it's perfectly um, uh, possible to continue with the traditional one of regulation and, if you like, attack the problem in a pincer movement. Lest you think, as I go through my proposals, that I'm a latter-day Trotskyite, um, that's not the true truth at all. In fact, I'm absolutely in favor of, of free markets. The trouble is, they simply don't work, as theory suggests, and everybody has come to believe. And I don't even blame anyone. I don't bl blame any sector um, for the mess that we've got ourselves in except probably the academics, as you'll see. What are the problems with finance? The, the role of the finance sector is to channel savings into productive investment. It's also, of course, to facilitate trade 
and day-to-day -day transactions and, of course, to make secondary markets in, in, in equities, bonds, derivatives, currencies, and so forth. But all this is a fairly utility-like role with no final good or service. And as such, you'd expect it to be performed at no more than frictional cost. Yet banking and finance is the world's largest industry, accounting for 10% of GDP in the US and UK. Most people don't realize that the largest item in their family's budget is actually bank charges or the charges of the finance sector that are eroding their pensions or their, um, their assets and uh, additional charges on top of their debts and, and also, of course, credit cards and so on. And you can start to get an idea of, of how huge the banking sector has become in the fact that the corporate profits, the bank, uh, the, the profits of the banking sector rose from about 10% of aggregate corporate profits in this country and in the States 40 years ago to the point where before the crisis they were at 40%. 40% of corporate profits were represented uh, by the banking and finance sector. And that is after, in the case of the investment banks, after bankers have paid themselves bonuses representing 50% of revenues. Now that wouldn't even be acceptable if finance was doing a good job. But it, it hasn't been a good, a good job. And the damage comes in two forms. First of all, bubbles and crashes lead to the misallocation of, of, of capital across the economy. The finance sector, of course, uh, is a permanent bubble of its own, absorbing absurd, absurd quantities of capital and, and skilled labor. But it isn't so much the allocation, misallocation um, among the various competing needs of, of finance. It's actually the macroeconomic consequences uh, of the finance sector the most devastating because of their impact on growth and employment. Finance has become dominant, bloated, and prone to crisis. I firmly believe that future historians will marvel at the folly of, of us having allowed this ludicrous situation to develop. And it's been developing over recent decades, uh, such that you really would have expected it to have excited interest among academic economists. You would imagine queuing up to explain why finance was growing so large in the economy but not a bit of it. There have been no academic papers seeking to explain the size of the finance sector, none inquiring whether society was well served by the finance sector. The only exceptions relate to work showing how uh, effective uh, the growth of banking can be in emerging markets to, to promote growth. Why haven't there been studies? Well, Finance theory has developed over the last 40 or 50 years, asserts that financial markets are efficient. The efficient market hypothesis, uh, which was developed in the, in the 60s, 
holds that prices are informationally efficient. Share prices reflect the consensus uh, estimate of future cash flows. And prevailing theory holds that financial markets are self-stabilizing. Speculators will make money by finding mispriced stocks, either stocks that are too high or too low relative to their fair value, and bringing back them, them back to fair value. And the entire edifice of, of finance theory has been built on the foundation of efficient markets. So a lot's at stake. And indeed, academics mocked anyone, certainly in the 70s, who dared to disagree. Jean Farmer is reputed to have cried heretic to some rookie who tried to challenge the efficiency of markets. And the efficient market hypothesis has fostered a belief system that determined the actions of regulators, central bankers, accountants, actuaries, you name it. Greenspan, of course, uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, didn't intervene in the tech bubble as it was developing in the late 1990s on the grounds that bubbles didn't exist and if they did they couldn't be spotted. And the belief system also saw or implicitly believed that the vast profits of the banking sector were a sign of a job done vastly well. There was no need to question the size, therefore, and dominance of, of finance. Uh, it extended also to economic models of the economy, which treated the finance sector as a pass-through that had no impact on growth or stability. So prevailing theory for the last 50 years has been consistent with the principle that everyone was pursuing their own self-interest and that resulted in the best outcome for all. That was the uh, belief system. The status quo in finance was endorsed by academics, enjoyed by practitioners, and encouraged by governments. The events of the last decade, sorry, the last, um, yeah, the last decade, really, um, have increasingly um, thrust a dagger, in, a terminal blow to the efficient markets hypothesis stock market booms and crashes, banking crises and so forth have discredited the idea that markets are efficient and, and prices reflect fair value at all times. And the search is on for a new paradigm, a new theory of how financial markets work. It, it's uh, not helped, I believe, by commentators and some economists who go around saying that because markets are irrational it follows that market participants must be irrational. these com commentators assume that economics has to settle for behavioral explanations and declare that all maths were, was a waste of time and th these have been articles op-eds in the FT and so forth I don't believe you have to look too far to see where things have gone wrong uh, unfortunately I think there's been an oversimplification of the way capital markets work They've assumed that investors invest directly in the stock market. That the investors are representative household investing directly in, in the stock and capital markets. They've ignored the fact that investors hire others to do the work for them. 
let's take the case of the, of the giant funds. Uh, they, uh, on the left-hand side, uh, are the principals. On the right-hand side, they hire agents. They hire financial intermediaries, fund managers, investment banks, brokers, hedge funds. There are multiple principal agent relationships in finance, but the ones I'm going to concentrate are those that are central to the financial process, uh, the capital markets and the pricing of assets. And the implications of delegation are significant. Agents, it, the term asymmetric information uh, relates to the fact they have more information and better skills than the principals. That's why they're hired. Uh, they also have different objectives. Uh, their objectives are not aligned with those of the principals, their clients. And once you factor in the role of agents, everything, the analysis changes dramatically. The theories uh, that incorporate the middlemen, the agents, give predictions that differ radically from those uh, that ignore them. Uh, first of all, and the, these are the two themes I want to emphasize, it becomes possible to explain why stocks and markets get mispriced, uh, how it is that bubbles and, and uh, crashes occur. The second is that the agents, the fund managers and hedge funds, end up doing better than their clients, the giant funds. The agents end up capturing the bulk of any gain for themselves. Importantly, the theories that we're developing in the centers at uh, LSE in Toulouse, uh, in incorporating agents into the uh, asset pricing models, uh, we retain a fully rational framework. Everybody's acting rationally and optimally in their own individual self-interest. Let me just go quickly through uh, the bones of, of both those two models. Uh, first of all, mispricing and momentum. Momentum has been a well-known, well-researched, well-documented feature of capital markets um, for, for uh, as long as the data goes back. Keynes, of course, wrote extensively on the fads and fashions of, of investment leading to uh, the trend-following behavior of market participants. But momentum has uh, remained until recently what Farmer described as the premier unexplained anomaly, unexplained that is in, in a rational model. Um, my, I've been interested for actually 40 years in the efficiency of markets every time, ever since I read um, IMD Little's book, Hickledy Pickledy Growth in the 60s. Um, and that was one of the early uh, uh, works showing the randomness, randomness of um, earnings and prices in, in, in stock markets and one of the early books in the efficient market hypothesis. Um, anyhow, the tech bubble uh, w was to me a wonderful laboratory experiment in, in how markets work and how momentum gets into the system. My firm was um, a value, so-called value manager. We um, bought stocks based on their long-run 
expected long-run dividend streams. Uh, and, of course, tech stocks looked uh, vastly overvalued. They didn't have any earnings currently and nothing in the foreseeable future. And we were underweight in our pension fund port portfolios for clients, very underweight in, in the tech stock sector. And we underperformed drastically in that period, underperforming the index by something like 25% um, against uh, the uh, FT and the S&P indices um, over a period of uh, a couple of years. And we were fired by 40% of our, of our clients who thought we'd lost the plot. Uh, actually, we, we, it proved, we were proved right. We hadn't lost the plot, but we lost business in spades. And the money was transferred by the pension fund clients from us to growth managers who did hold overweights in tech stocks. And this is where the amplification or momentum starts. Uh, you can demonstrate how it gets into the system. Uh, you, you can always show how it might be uh, um, confirmed in the system, but to show how it gets into the system is the most important thing. And this is what um, Dimitri Vainos and, and, and I are doing here at LSE, uh, developing um, with our first paper an institutional theory of, of momentum and reversal, showing how this amplification occurs uh, once you introduce agents and uncertainty about the ability uh, of the agent on the part of the principal. And what we show is that asset prices are, are determined, in fact, uh, in what amounts to a battle between value and momentum. Value being the future dividend stream, momentum being the, the tendency for trends to develop uh, and bubbles and, and, and implosions. They don't have to be major ones, but there are always uh, waves or uh, currents in markets which take prices away from fair value. And what we show is that prices, once you introduce agents, prices don't just depend on the future dividend streams, they depend very much on fund flows, investor fund flows shifting between sectors and between stocks and between asset classes. And fund flows can be hugely disruptive. So we show how um, momentum gets into the system um, and there are various other factors which then uh, do extend that and amplify it further. Once you show that you have momentum in markets, as you, you, what you find is uh, that it starts to be used as the basis for investment. So in, 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 instead of managers just using estimates of dividend flows, best estimates of fair value, they start to ride these, these trends. They start to use uh, just short-run price changes and they tend to uh, and, and ignore fundamental value. Indeed, if you hold a, held a pistol at my head and said, 
you've got to outperform over the next three months, so I'll shoot you. Then I would use um, momentum, I would use trend following rather than fair value as the basis because it is so pervasive in markets. And in fact, it is pretty well the dominant driver of prices, trend following momentum in the short term. More than half the trading, uh, by implication, if you look at the turnover, the annual turnover of, um, in, in equities is about 100%. Uh, for some hedge funds, mutual fund portfolios, it's 200% per annum. Uh, the comp composition of the portfolio has changed. In that case, 100% or 200% each year. So what has happened is that delegation to agents has created this fight, this battle between value and momentum. And it's fostered the conditions in which short-termism has been more and more prevalent. And uh, I believe it's a major source of all the trouble. It also drains the value of, of your, um, your pension savings. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, one typically says on a long horizon, say a 25-year horizon um, for your retirement. But that corporate pension plan will be managed by agents who will, following the instructions of the principals, the pension fund principals, uh, those fund managers will churn the portfolio 25 times at a cost uh, modestly estimated at 1% a year. Uh, that means that the fund, your fund at the end of 25 years has lost 30% of the value it would have done had you been in a passive investment. So that's where some of the costs of, I'm talking about bank charges, bank or finance sector charges, that just shows where, it, it, where it's come from. They're just exchanging between, uh, between funds, between pension funds, <laughs> exchanging bits of paper um, for no collective gain. And in fact, because this often leads to um, extreme price movements, uh, it is potentially damaging, highly damaging. The second aspect is rent capture. The fact that in the principal agent, one of the principal agent problems has to do with rent capture, the ability of the middleman to earn excess profits. And that really has not been examined, in my view. Uh, at, it, it has been ex hardly touched, in fact, uh, rent capture in, in, in asset management. Um, and it isn't just that the agents are a position, and this is work uh, been going on at Toulouse, uh, in the Toulouse Centre, it isn't just that uh, the agents are in a position to capture the bulk of the gains from financial innovation, because they're at the intersection between, they're at the intersection of the savings investment process for the entire economy they have the potential to extract the bulk of the returns from the entire productive economy. They can bleed the economy dry. It started to feel like that recently, either in terms of uh, the banking profits when they were there and the banking charges, or the costs they imposed when, when, the, when the, 
when the system collapses. And how do they do this? Well, agents charge a base fee for managing money. They also typically share in the gains, a performance fee. And so the client, uh, it, it, it's heads the, um, the manager wins and, and tells the client loses. Uh, the, the agent, the, the agent, sorry, the agent gets away scot-free, um, and that is moral hazard. The agent wins, heads the agent wins, tells the client loses. That's moral hazard. Not bearing the cost of anything that goes wrong. I'm not actually blaming the agents. Uh, it's not the. It's it just the, the the system has has developed in a way that it's been uh, assumed that. that you put money with a good agent and um, what has happened is that the principals are competing to have their funds managed by the best agent so the, the, the cost uh, of uh, uh, rises for the good ones and funds, are, uh, funds uh, the giant funds have been uh, allowing themselves to be deluded by a lack of information about what the agents are doing with their money, opacity, moral hazard, and constant innovation of complex products. That's the main reason they, the agents end up uh, with a good part of the loot. The other thing, of course, is that stock, uh, stock markets and, uh, are a zero-sum game, but it's a zero-sum game, less costs. And the purpose of the game is to distribute what is left among the giant funds. Every fund is actively competing for higher returns on their investments and prepared to pay whatever the agents charge. Each fund observes a mispriced market, thinks it's therefore inappropriate to, to, inappropriate to have the money managed passively and go to active management. So the overall costs borne by everyone increase. In fact, active management, you'd think it would be just confined to the equities in issue, or the bonds in issue, but it's not. It's not confined to that, because the active management and the costs associated with it, it uh, expand into this virtual world of derivatives, $600 trillion of derivatives in issue. Uh, futures, options, CDOs, CDSs, um, they're all, I believe, uh, the size of it is, is, is not testimony to the, the efficiency of markets and the fact that people wouldn't buy them if they uh, didn't want them. It, it is actually testimony to the malfunctioning of finance, that the, the size of the derivatives market is what it is. So we're in a bizarre world. It's good material for the unwritten book five of Gulliver's Travels, in my view. And principal agent problems lie at the heart of all that's gone wrong in finance. Everyone perceives themselves to be acting optimally and rationally in their own self-interest, but the outcome is socially proving to be disastrous. So I believe what we are seeing is a situation um, that the solution lies in the principles recognizing the problem and changing the way they contract and instruct agents. And 
I propose 10 steps that giant funds can take to rectify the problem. There's every incentive for them to do this because of the private gain that would come to them from doing it, regardless of whether it's adopt they're adopted by anybody else. It comes in the form of improved long-run returns on their fund. Over the last 60 years, just to give you uh, a measure of what the starting point is, over the last 60 years, uh, pension funds have earned in the region of 5% per annum after inflation. In the last 10 years, that's gone down to 1.5% per annum real. Your, your, your pension fund has been earning 1.5% both in the US and the UK a year for the last 10 years after inflation. So is it any wonder that companies worldwide have been hobbled by pension fund deficits? If we assume that the long run achievable is between, say, 4 or 5%, then I believe that the measure, measure because I, I would say that we, the starting point of the 10 years was at the top of the market um, in, in 2000. But nevertheless, there's been a, a, a striking decline in the returns from, from um, long-term pension funds investment uh, over the last couple of decades. What I put together is a manifesto for action. Um, it's a manifesto of policies I wrote this at the time the election was starting to come along, so I thought manifesto, I'd have my own. Um, and what I suggest is, uh, first of all, 10 action points for giant funds. The first, adopt a long-term, this is, sounds almost like motherhood and apple pie, adopt a long-term investment approach, concentrating on future dividend flows rather than momentum, short-run price changes. But that is not built in to the contracts. The contracts require, in effect, the agents, the, the agents to pursue um, momentum-type strategies simply to keep the risk of the portfolio down in relation to the uh, benchmark, keep the tracking error down. The, it's a bit like the hare and the tortoise. The, 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 the hare is boastful, flashy, has bursts of success, uh, uses short-term price changes, momentum investing, and wins over the short periods, may win over the short periods, but not in the long run. The tortoise boringly uh, plods steadily along, concentrating on, on, on real value and dividends, um, and wins the race in the end. And of course, the return on equities ultimately depends on dividends. This has been forgotten in the brash new world of finance, where some companies have even stopped, even stopped bothering to pay dividends, a third of them in the States. The second is to cap annual turnover of portfolios at 30%. There's nothing more likely to cause the agent to focus on long-term investment 
than having his port turnover capped at 30%, i.e. reduced from the high levels that are currently typical. Um, and you might think that's restrictive. It means a holding period of just over three years for every stock. But of course, any, any manager with fu new funds coming in will be able to revise the portfolios. And that isn't a question of just simply buying and selling from an existing portfolio. Now, this is an interesting one. Understand that all the tools now used to determine risk and return, to analyze risk and return, either by the managers or the agents or, or by the, uh, the principals, all the tools now in use are based on the discredited theory of efficient markets, all the risk analysis. Diversification is based on um, uh, existing capital market theory founded in the, uh, on the principle price is right. This carries a nice irony, um, in fact. Um, investors have been exploiting market inefficiencies for years. Um, but they continue to use the tools that assume market efficiency. And some even do this while disparaging academic theory. It's a very costly mistake. Um, briefly, uh, it means that, for, for example, the indices that are form the benchmark for active and passive investment, uh, they, can't, they shouldn't really be used because they're inappropriate benchmarks because they don't constitute efficient portfolios. Remember when Japan accounted for 55% um, of a global equity index in 1990. It subsequently fell to something like uh, 8%. In, uh, later in the decade. So any index strategy or any active strategy benchmarked on that um, would be um, uh, undesirable, to say the least. 45% um, of the S&P accounted, was accounted for by tech stocks at the top of the bubble 10 years later. Uh, risk analysis, diverse, uh, diversification. You say, well, okay, well, what do we use? Well, um, in, in, existing risk measures should be replaced by those using underlying dividends or their equivalent or smooth earnings, not prices. It's interesting also that um, there's been a, a strong move in the last three years for investors to go into alternative investments um, based on the observed low correlation of those new asset classes with existing asset classes like equities and bonds. But the very act of going into these new classes uh, changes the correlation, the prices change, and the effort is not rewarded certainly not as much as, as was, was uh, expected. Rattling on. Uh, so, the, uh, okay, if you don't use a set of indices as benchmark, what do you use? Growth of GDP plus a, risk, a premium for risk. GDP is based on uh, underlying economic 
growth. It's an ideal proxy for future liabilities. And you've only got to look at how steady it is over time. We've had a nasty kink lately, but this is a long run, uh, 120 years, 110 years. Um, also, with the Schiller fair value measure taking a dip in the uh, last few years, but recovering, pretty stable. If you then see, well, look at the S&P over the time, 20 times more volatile, or at least the, uh, yeah, 20 times more volatile than the um, GDP or, or fair value. Uh, if you'd used, um, say, to well, Tobin's Q um, approach to investing, uh, that would help to guide you to um, you switch in and out of equities uh, as they got over or undervalued. GDP plus a risk premium is a perfect uh, benchmark. Don't pay, for don't pay for performance fees. Going back to the, the 10 principles, don't pay performance fees. Trying to assess whether a manager's performance is due to skill or market moves or luck is near impossible, in, certainly in the short run. And performance-related fees encourage managers to gamble the moral hazard aspect. Um, don't engage in any form of alternative investing, hedge funds, private equity, commodities. Um, they carry no long-term advantage over and above investing in public markets because of the high fees charged, because the diversification benefits disappear once they're widely adopted, and because, frankly, the performance data uh, isn't well, to be courteous, isn't reliable or re revealing, sufficiently revealing. Hedge funds, uh, just briefly on hedge funds, um, I did actually, in my um, office in, in London, we did start one of the first hedge funds in the UK. I'm not actually ashamed to say. Uh, we, we started it um, in '92, um, a long short equity, um, not particularly leveraged, but uh, it was very successful briefly. Um, but it was, we just exploited a particular mispricing at the time. So, I, you know, I, I, I can see why people devise them. The trouble is that um, the, uh, the fees that hedge funds are able to claim, 2%, whether they do well or not, a year, 20% of the gains uh, they take. They suffer none of the losses. If they say, well, we co-invest, well, but they're co-investing with the money they've already earned from you. Um, interestingly, there are, it, it's a zero-sum game. So hedge funds, they may be more successful um, than, than standard. And indeed, I'm sure they are those that survive more successful than, than conventional asset management. But the trouble is that their cost structure is very, very high. And what they're doing is extracting alpha because it's a zero-sum game. They're extracting alpha from the market, which the traditional managers are, having to are giving up, are losing. I, I think hedge funds should actually reveal what they're earning gross before payment of uh, all the 
prime brokerage, investment banking fees, and so forth. Commodities uh, a special case. Um, until 2005, you could explain the price of a commodity, any individual commodity, on whether it's wheat futures, pork bellies, aluminium, freight rates, oil, whatever. You could explain, and talking to specialists, you could explain prices on the basis of the supply and demand for the underlying commodity. The search for alternative investments uh, for the giant funds caused something like uh, three or four hundred billion dollars of investment coming very quickly through in 2007, six, seven, eight, plus active management. That was just the passive, and then the active on top of that. So probably uh, up to a, a trillion dollars of, of money flowing in and out of commodities, distorting the market for commodities, causing the correlations to change and to be much more correlated. They had a negative correlation commodities en masse with, with, with equities until 2005. Now they're positively correlated, and it's messed up all the signals for supply, suppliers um, and users of, of the commodities themselves. And the investors have lost out because of the fees and the diversification benefits have disappeared. Um, apart from that, they're fine. Um, insist on total transparency of agency, agent strategy. That sounds obvious, but of course, we don't know what, what, um, anything about what goes on uh, in, um, for instance, hedge funds. We, we don't know how much leverage they've got at any time. We don't know um, their um, long, short balance, etc., uh, etc. Et um, everything in the portfolio should be traded on a public exchange. Uh, that reduces the chan chance of um, the exploitative nature of agency. Uh, secure full transparency of banking services costs incurred by companies in which you invest. Um, there's a big agency problem in the um, hiring of uh, finance services by uh, companies. Uh, and you've only got to look at the, for instance, the underwriting costs have, for some reason, doubled in the last two years. They've doubled. Um, underwriting new issues, since they're mostly at a deep discount to the prevailing market uh, value uh, or the prevailing price of the stock um, it's money for old rope uh, but the cost has doubled and it can be anywhere between um, 4 and 8% depending on the size of the company and the size of the issue uh, and finally provide full disclosure so why you ask haven't people like Yale and so forth the smart investors, we're told to believe, um, why haven't they done some of these things? Um, why have they allowed the investment horizon to shorten? Why have they um, been prepared to pay such high fees? Um, it's partly because the, agent, the, the principals have started to act like another tier of agent. They're staffed by 
former agents or people who aspire to be agents. They um, are advised by actuaries, investment consultants, who are obviously, they've got their own book to consider. Um, but again, it's this really important factor. They're using the wrong tools. Um, the giant funds, whatever they're doing individually, um, given they're using the wrong tools, everything they're doing individually uh, is damaging the collective return for, for all of them. Finally, the policymakers can do a number of things. Uh, I said that it's self-interest should drive this. Uh, it's the positive approach of self-interest. There's a good reason why the funds should do this. They'll raise their return, even if no, it, it's just them and a few others that do it. And I've had a lot of interest expressed in, in this by, by, by large, very large funds. Uh, they are keenly interested in this because they want, you know, want to know what, what's happened, why, why are there, their earnings, why are the returns so, so poor, and, and what's happening in, to the system. Well, there's one thing that um, obviously calling for the adoption of the manifesto by all public funds. Another is, in the UK, sitting in the um, legislation, but hardly ever implemented for the last 30 years, uh, is um, a provision that a, a pension fund that allows excessive trading in one part of its portfolio will jeopardize and lose its tax exempt status. That's been implemented, uh, applied in a half a dozen cases over the last, uh, well, in the 80s, and uh, I think only in the 80s, not subsequently. But uh, whether or not, I mean, that's just in the UK, but all these funds I'm talking about, the giant funds, they are all enjoying tax exemption. And uh, this could be, well, the, the, uh, the carrot for the giant funds is the return they can enjoy from limiting turnover and pursuing long-term long -term strategies. The stick would be if they lose their, their tax uh, exemption. Uh, issue GDP bonds uh, as an ideal instrument for investors and, and borrowers. Um, uh, the return on um, GDP grows at two and a half to three over time. Um, in the developed, market, developed economies, and that's real, uh, a real return. Uh, GDP bonds with a fixed maturity would give the three things that investors want. They only want three things. They want inflation protection, they want some growth, and they want um, low volatility. Well, a redeemable GDP bond, there are technical difficulties. Um, but they're attractive to investors, they're attractive to governments to issue them because the service costs are correlated with, with growth and therefore tax revenue. Um, so I, I conclude that this is a different approach. It's one that uh, the incentive system could uh, kick in and de deliver 
huge social returns in, sort of more, in, in the form of more stable markets, less, less expo exploitation by the agents, and it would cut the finance sector down to size. Uh, if we don't do something, um, I think we're going to have another crisis along the line, and that could spell the end of capitalism as we know it. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, the, uh, the the talk, as I expected, was not without controversial points. So, uh, no doubt there are those of you that got strong comments on what's been said. But what we'll try to do is to take a range of questions. Um, perhaps if you could just indicate if you wish to ask a question, so I get an idea of what we're looking at. Okay, well, why don't you start at the back? Can you send a microphone over there, please? Uh, thank you very much for very interesting ideas, I'd say. Uh, one thing that didn't show up at all in your manifesto was personal greed, which I believe is a strong link to all of the institutional investors that you've talked about. I think the change of management structures and the change of fund managers for pension funds, for example, actually has links to their personal interests and therefore they may not be as interested in the social, well, in the society benefiting as much as they should when these pension funds were set up. Um, yes, I, d I didn't think... Um what I'm trying to do is to get clinical about this. I'm not, I'm not sort of trying to have a value judgment about greed or... Um, I mean, certainly what does happen is that um, the agents realize that they're onto a good thing and they can, they can um, uh, craft the contracts with the... Uh, principles in ways that um, increase the likelihood of, of a good return. Um, there are a number of things that, uh, that they do uh, as a convention which actually um, uh, does push up the moral hazard for them, increases the chance of, a, of, a high, of high payoffs. Uh, as to the personal greed, well, I, the trouble is some of the pay structures for some of the, particularly the US and some of the big UK uh, giant funds, the pay structure has certainly um, caused them to act more like agents. And, uh, you know, you, one has to get away f from that. And, and, and I do think that uh, it, 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 there should be a popular w uh, uprising on all this, that pe people are are supine about this, I think because they seem, they seem to have swallowed uh, the idea that if, if the finance sector is flourishing, then, then the, the economy is going to be fine. It's not it's, it's, it's at all. Um, a finance actually um, could be very, really quite, quite boring. I mean, the, the one thing that isn't done, for instance, is Venture capital, where all the ideas come from, hardly gets any money. Uh, it, all this is, the, this, the greed, if you like, is, is, re, is related to trading in second, secondary markets. 
or, or structured finance, which takes it off the market altogether. Somebody went to sleep having visited their bank manager in, say, 1970, having uh, deposited some money with them, and then going back to see what had happened to it and how it had been used, having awakened somewhere in the late 1990s, might have had a nasty shock, I might have thought, because uh, what he would have found was that there would be a different sort of bank manager Yes, let me address that. I mean, I'm not advocating we go back um, 40 years. I mean, a lot of things that have happened are constructive. Um, The the reason we didn't have much trading, or a far lower level of trading pre-1970s, was actually because because there was a monopoly restriction on brokerage commissions, which which kept uh, the the spread up in the... uh, a round trip in equities even for an institution, it would be three or four, four or five percent. Um, so uh, that was grit in the system if you had a, a hurdle like that. Um, the other thing is that there was, um, there was very little information uh, available on companies. Um, there was, uh, there's been much more uh, uh, transparency about earnings and reporting of earnings. Um, but um, uh, we are in a new world with, with much more information, with the ability to uh, deal very quickly. Um, in fact, so quickly. That's, that's another something else I didn't mention, which was the high-intensity trading, uh, which is trading by computer in a millisecond. Well, um, that, that isn't just that isn't um, momentum trading. That's um, it, it's a form of. War, war games between computers um, uh, at our cost. I mean, the market inexplicably fell just 9% um, 10 days ago. It fell because somehow the war went wrong. Uh, and and um, People don't know what the value of assets are anymore. Well, that's, yes, in a nutshell. Yeah, can we take another question, please? Uh, over here, the microphone, please. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, I think your manifesto is more of a tactical manifesto. These ten points are points that any pension fund consultant would have presented to a pension fund, and they would have done this for the last ten years. Um, it's all good 
good advice. However, I think some of the current issues are more strategic. Firstly, do the pension funds or the giant funds have the right assets to meet changing liabilities? And here I'm thinking about rising retirement ages, which have a big impact on sort of the asset mix that you want to put together against these liabilities. Secondly, are giant funds there to maximize returns, or are they instruments of pu public policy? There, I'm thinking about China, for example, and their huge funds who are there to maximize their returns, but also to invest in some of their failing banks. How should, that be, how should they approach that? Thirdly, the problem of transparency, which was an issue three, two or three years ago with some of the funds in the Middle East. If anything, you mentioned the Norwegian funds. They've been on the vanguard at publishing their strategies and being fairly transparent about it. And then the fourth point is we are talking about dysfunctional markets, and I think the challenge right now for these huge funds is how do they invest in a deleveraging market? Does it change their asset mix? So I think those are more the strategic issues that these, these funds have in front of them rather than these tactical 10 points of your manifesto. Um, well, first of all, I, I would um, challenge your view that um, this is something that's been hawked by uh, consultants, asset consultants for the last 10 years. I can't, uh, don't think there are too many who said don't invest in hedge funds, uh, private equity or, um, or, or commodities. In fact, quite the contrary. Um, the um, second point is that um, the IMF has put together, together with the sovereign wealth funds, what are called the Santiago Principles. This stemmed from a conference two years ago in Santiago, and it 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 um, it, it really is um, a rather mealy-mouthed um, set of principles, um, just the sort of thing you'd expect, um, like more transparency and the quality of the manager. There's nothing, there's nothing explicit about any of the things that I mentioned. Um, the third thing is that um, I have been talking to, I've been asked to talk to a number of sovereign wealth funds, a number of the giant funds, um, and uh, I can tell you they are extremely concerned about the situation and want to know what to do about it. Um, there, there is not the, the Yale model that started to form um, the, the, the principle of investing. Um, the Yale model, which uh, followed by Harvard and the other endowments, uh, which uh, lost 30% of value in the last two years um, for them. They had good returns up to that point. Um, uh, David Svensson of the Yale Fund was not just an early bird, he was an initiator. He actually um, uh, would come along and say, what are your best ideas? Uh, okay, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll give you some starter money for it. Uh, so, you know, that was fine. And, and that's how he, how he did well out of his strategy of hedge funds. Hedge funds have, um, first of all, the hedge fund owners have um, made more, either the same or more money out of the hedge funds than the people who have put the money up. Um, 
And that's on the basis of the reported return figures. But the trouble is, people, and this is classic, people put money into a strategy or with a firm or into an asset class after it's done well, and they pull it out after it's done badly. So the money-weighted return, we don't use money-weighted return uh, in reporting performance, and we should. Um, firms that have a show, display their record <coughs> um, in terms of um, the, what's called the time-weighted rate of return, which is the traditional and accepted method of reporting. The trouble is, uh, in a, on a, in a money-weighted, if you were weighted according to how much money is invested, um, uh, the money-weighted returns have, have um, been very poor indeed. Um, and uh, so th these giant funds um, are struggling to know uh, they don't have a li they're not liability driven because they're not unlike pension funds they're more like the college endowments uh, who want the three things that I mentioned uh, they can't lock into a um, oh the other thing about locking in the, the actuaries are always locking you in to the latest fad usually at the wrong time. Um, I, um, actuaries, because they're so bright, uh, don't come in for enough criticism in my view. Sorry, that was a, a rambling reply, but you, but you did ask several questions. There was another question over. Okay, the young man at the back here. Could you send a microphone over there, please? Uh, hi there. Um, I, I'd just like to pick you up on the point you made about uh, uh, alternative investments. Uh, we've just seen the FM directive go through in, in Brussels, and the effect it seems to be having is to corral all the hedge funds into another form, UCITS, which is much more retail orientated. Um, given that you've said that you, you want uh, uh, less investment in the hedge funds, how, how do you see that playing itself out? Um. The, um, it's interesting that uh, France and Germany have a much more negative view of hedge funds than, than Britain. Um, we, are, we, are, we are host to 80% um, uh, of the hedge fund business in the UK. Um, the attitude of the French and Germans is that they uh, tend to be disruptive to markets. Um, a view I share because of the uh, short-termist strategy. Uh, they tend, not all of them, but, but most of them. Uh, I mean, e e even the carry trade is, is a momentum strategy, in fact. That's a sort of footnote. Um, the, um, the, the trouble with um, hedge funds is they started off with high net worth individuals, people who had enough money that it didn't matter if they lost a, um, the East Wing in to hedge funds. Um, but then they went into the uh, institutional field and, and, and uh, pension funds and, and, and uh, other um, giant funds started to use them. And now it's coming down to the poor man in the, well, the, man in the streets. And I, I'm sure he'll get even more ripped off by them. Uh, they are really... Um, they, they suffer from all the problems that I've mentioned of opacity, uh, moral hazard, uh, 
I mean, what do, what do hedge fund managers themselves do with their own money? They keep it in cash or in passive investment. I think that if, if I got a bunch of hedge fund managers, they would mostly agree with me on what, what I've been saying. Uh, if they uh, were honest. Uh, um, so I, I just hope that, um, I mean, we, the danger is that we, because we've been rather clever uh, and relied on our banking services to fund our balance payments or, or our uh, current account deficits for 150 years, um, losing our financial services would be um, a costly step. But we've got to bite, bite the bullet sometime because the finance sector won't continue to be the cash cow it's been. Uh, over here. Yeah. You've got him. The notion of shareholder value is very prevalent in investment circles. Do you think that the emphasizing this shareholder value of having quarterly reports and trying to meet them and so on and so forth is also part of your effort to rein in this activity? Um, I th shareholder value. Um, th there's, um, I, I'm not making the case for corporate governments um, in terms of, uh, or, or activism. Um, I'm not talking about um, the maximization of profits by, by corporate management. Uh, I'm really focusing much more on the principal agent problems in investment. Uh, and if you like, uh, what I'm saying is, um, I mean, when I'm talking about the private gains that are achievable, I'm saying that these funds are price takers, so they're just accepting whatever the returns are from the companies or, or from the asset classes uh, w without seeking to change the cash flows or to pr um, improve the cash flows or generate activism uh, or pursue shareholder value. Um, I mean, a lot of damage was done um, in, in corporate finance where you have, uh, where, where you, have a, you do have, again, um, you, the idea was to try and align the interests of the manager with those of the shareholders, but that promotes short-termist strategies uh, and so forth. I'm not really addressing those. Um, so um, it, it really is a different focus. Um, gentleman here. Actually, no, back. Man with a grey shirt. Thank you for your talk, Dr. Woolley. I want to ask um, a couple of questions concerned with um, pensions. Um, do you think, in fact, it would be advantageous? In fact, I think about 30 years ago, even a Conservative member of Parliament actually uh, raised this within his own party, but it was uh, waved away, that the uh, managers of various firms and corporations have their own pensions linked to those of their workers the managers, they wouldn't take a much closer interest as to what's happening to pension funds. As far as I know, only Unilever is a, a firm that's fought back, in fact, to get um, funds back for its employees. I think Morgan 
Grenfell were managing their firms, I'm not sure. The other thing that you um, mentioned, um, we're talking about the performance being linked to GDP um, growth. Well, wouldn't it be quite straightforward? I know this is probably heretical to your ears. Is just why not actually nationalise all pension funds? Thereby, you actually spread the portfolio of risks, don't you? This is an issue that seems to be avoided all the time. I'm not a rampant socialist, by the way. Well, I'm talking about market solutions. Um, uh, yes. Um, I mean, uh, let me just address the first part of your question. Um, it, it's fascinating, actually. Um, having seen this, um, the coalface, uh, over the years, um, what happens in... Um, when, when a, a CEO of a business sees something, some part of his business failing, he says, oh, we'll get rid of it, get a new manager, sack him. Uh, quick action, you know, that, that, that's uh, how to deal with things. When it comes to the pension fund, uh, that's potentially the wrong thing to do. And, uh, you know, when we as fund managers in the tech bubble underperformed, we were doing so for a very sound reason. It took two or three years for that to, to, um, to be vindicated. Um, but the reason we lost 40% um, of our business was simply because um, of this, um, um, the, the need always to satisfy short-term um, targets and short-term performance. Um, the, um, so sometimes when companies get involved with a pension fund, they don't always do the right, right things. Um, I, um, I think that um, I think if, if 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 some of the points that I've been raising, uh, I think it's actually uh, a, a lot of it has to do with lack of knowledge. It, it, it's trustees not being aware of, of what's happening and of the. Um, they're, they're pursuing what they've always tried to do, um, but it's led to a situation where the, it's short-term focused, um, it's, um, it, it's getting the best managers with the best recent performance. Uh, the whole mentality of investing, I think, needs to change. Um, and I'm certainly not looking to... Um, um, for, for nationalisation of of, um, of, of um, pension plans, um, but um, I do think that the policymakers uh, should seek to intervene to ensure that some of these issues are, are aired uh, and. Um, we don't just go along, continue to go along as we have been going along. Hi, thank you. Um, very interesting talk. You've raised very many issues which uh, perhaps for those amongst us who aren't economists give us uh, a deeper insight. Uh, what strikes me from what you were saying is at the moment in this country and in the West 
there is a demand for uh, greater accountability, greater transparency. And we see that not just in our economic markets, but we also see that in Parliament, and we see that in um, legal duties such as, as a trustee. Um, as a trustee, uh, trustees have various legal duties, and perhaps it's back to what you were putting to all of us. Uh, we need to make our government far more accountable and far more transparent, and precisely the very same issues that we need to address to our political um, agents. We need to do exactly the same for those who are in a position that govern the economic markets. And more specifically, we need to be very well aware of the central bank. The tragedy is too many people are not fully conversant with the background of the central bank and its governance factor with these conflicts of interest. Um, I'd like to hear your views on that. Yes, I mean, I, I, um, how you bring this off, how you bring it off, uh, um, is potentially daunting. Um, I do think there's uh, um, a, a huge opportunity, actually, uh, at this very moment, because the IMF has uh, sold $12 billion of, of gold and is setting up an endowment fund. And the Crockett Committee um, has proposed uh, that that proposed this, uh, the sale of gold and, and for the use of the fund to fund the IMS activities. And it proposed uh, indexing. Um, well, I believe that there are a number of people at the fund who accept some of the ideas that I am talking about. Um, I can't swear by it, but I, I think that if you could get the IMF in a very high-profile way to act, I mean, for God, God's sake, you know, they should have the interests, one, of, of not only the self-interest to maximize your return, but the interest also of stabilizing markets. Uh, I would love to see, and I'm urging it, actually, that the IMF does adopt these uh, principles uh, instead of just plain vanilla um, passive indexing, uh, which, which, as I've painfully um, repeated, um, are the wrong tools. It's, it's adopting the wrong tools. And, um, and then, if the IMF adopted these principles, uh, it's very easy for them then to bring together the sovereign wealth funds and uh, modify the uh, Santiago principles. It, it, they have an interest as a supranational agency, um, an interest in the stability of the markets, and indeed uh, this would be a wonderful way for them to show an initiative, um, and they could um, be um, the th initiators of, of this um, new approach. But I have to say that it doesn't rely just on them. I, I think there's enough of um, a concern um, among the investors. I mean, for goodness sake, 1.5% real over 10 years. Um, and and it's, we're still in very choppy waters. Um, um, it, it, um, it, it's difficult to see uh, there was an article in, in the Financial Times, Julian Tett, the other day, saying, you know, 
after the L model that's now been discredited, the L model being one where funds put 50% um, into hedge funds, uh, alternative investments and so forth. Um, and um, that's been discredited. So, so what's next? So I, I think what's next is, is what I'm talking about. Well, you've, you've had your turn. I know, but I haven't, had, I haven't finished. You, General. Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, I'm the chairman. I am the chairman of the meeting. I'm asking this chap here to speak. Please. Uh, there are rules here which I'll give you a copy of. Yeah, okay. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. The crux of your argument seemed to rest on, on two points. Um, the first that, uh, to quote you, everything done individually uh, damages the collective. Um, it's an idea that there's some externality uh, in place and there's a coordination failure subsequently. If they use the wrong tools. Sure, okay. Um, the externality being, uh, I've taken uh, from your talk, that if all of these giant funds invest uh, for the short term, there's then spillover effects on each other. Um, however, I'm still a bit perplexed as to how they get into the position of wanting to invest for the short term anyway. Um, surely someone looking for where to invest their pension is looking for a fund which is going to maximize their return over the long term. Now, unless there's a failure in how people are choosing their funds, I don't see why there's the incentive for all the giant funds to invest short term. Uh, perhaps you could just okay, that's an excellent question, and I can give you um, uh, uh, an answer. Um, you're a giant fund. You want to hire a manager. Uh, you see mispriced markets, and you think there's a good, he's a good manager, and you give him, a, you, you have a contract with him. You give him guidelines on performance. You tell him you want to outperform. Uh, say it's U U.S. equities. You want to outperform the market by. 2% and you give him a tracking error, right? The tracking error is that he doesn't diverge by more than, uh, it, it's typically one standard deviation in, um, uh, is given so that um, uh, one year in three or two years in three you must be within um, zero or plus, sorry, minus two plus six. So you, you give a, a tracking error. It seems sensible. You limit his scope to, to uh, diverge from the index. But in doing that, you are forcing to, him to use momentum simply to keep within the tracking error. You are forcing him, uh, as we were forced, to, to simply, um, if, we have, if you have tracking error as a manager, uh, you are forced to use short-term momentum-type strategies simply to keep within the, in, within the, within the guidelines. Um, and, and so what happens is you see a, a mispricing, uh, you hire an active manager, but you give him what seems to be sensible, conventional and uh, guidelines. And it means that that manager will, more of his trades than not, will bear no relation to fair value. I mean, this is what we, we were very good value. We are a very good, if I were, I, I'm no longer associated with the company, but um, we, we had a very good valuation model, but we're obliged to have 30% of the portfolio in momentum-type strategies um, to keep within the guidelines. Because that strategy, momentum strategy, is a higher turnover than value, more of our trades than not bore no relation to fair value. 
And so it's ludicrous. So what we were doing, uh, we were uh, contributing to the distortions of the markets with one part of what we're doing and, and exploiting them with the other. And that's, that's the dysfunctionality. We'll take this one last question, then we'll bring things to an end. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask about, uh, or if you could perhaps elaborate a little bit more on what you were saying about diversification. I was understanding if, for example, uh, markets are mispriced and let's say you've got a large section which is represented by Japan. Um, but beyond that, let, just in sort of general terms, what, what are your views on, on diversification? The one bit of diversification um, uh, well, I mean, personally, um, my view was always to have a third in cash, a third in property, assuming I was solvent at the time, a third in cash, a third in property, and, and a third in, in, in uh, equity. Uh, so that's a sort of rule of thumb, diversification. Um, I mean, I was talking about diversification, and, and diversification is a good thing, um, but, but you should you should base it on the cash flows rather than the prices. Um, the, um, uh, what what I, I said how when all the funds started to move into alternative investments, they changed the, uh, the pricing. They caused the correlations to, be, to become positive where they previously were negative. They start to have all the commodities starting to move with a much higher positive correlation. Um, the one, part, one element of um, diversification that never goes away is actually currency diversification. Uh, at least you can always be sure there'll be, there'll be um, um, it, it, you will be able to diversify a portfolio by currency and that won't disappear how many people uh, go that route. Uh, it may in the short run, but not in the long run. Thank you very much. So that brings our proceedings to a close. I'd like to thank you, the audience, as usual, for coming here and your excellent questions. Obviously, uh, if we could all show a vote of thanks to Paul for his uh, interesting talk. Thank you very much. <laughs>